Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 2. Warnings in the scriptures are used by God in the lives of his people to sanctify us and to keep us on the straight and narrow way that leads to salvation. One theme of warning that the scriptures put before us is that a heightened view of self paired closely with the related desire for the things of this world, those inevitably coincide with a diminished view of God. For example, Moses warned the Israelites about the pride in their hearts that would come in times of prosperity, causing them to forget the Lord. They would trust their own ability, their own power, esteem themselves, and falsely end up seeing their own strength really as the source for all they had gained. There was a connection between their gain and then pride and then exalting self and the resulting diminished view of God. Jeremiah proclaimed that the strong, wise, and rich should not boast in any of those things, but should instead supremely value the knowledge of God. Jesus warned us about the incompatibility of love for God and love for money. So that demonstrated in this story and his interaction with the rich young ruler as well. The Apostle John sternly warns that those who love the things of the world do not love God. It is the things of the world that vie for our attention. Those things include pleasures, we're told, and material things, and the boastful pride of life. And we may be tempted to identify external threats to our faith, threats like godless leaders and increasing secular hostility, and those are threats. We may think they're more dangerous than the internal threats of lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And external threats certainly can reveal weakness in our faith. They can even tempt us to abandon our pursuit of Jesus. But internal threats are far more insidious and ultimately more dangerous. In fact, I would argue that external threats are only a threat when working in tandem with the internal threats that are found in our own hearts, our fleshly inclinations that can be toward wealth, power, honor, what other vain things we may set our hope in. Even in whatever tiny roles we play in this life, our hearts can be greedy or ambitious. And when we're self-exalted, our view of God is diminished. We don't see him. We don't see his work as we ought. And then this furthers our distance from him, which in turn increases our affections for worldly ways of thinking and acting. And so we must tend our hearts They must be weaned away, weaned off of such affections, weaned off of man-centered hope and trust. And the Word of God helps do that weaning by showing us, we might call true reality, by showing us how things really are. God's Word shows us reality by giving God's assessment of what's going on in the world around us and God's assessment of what's going on inside of us in our hearts with clarity so that ultimately our hearts can be reoriented toward him. The prophets often do this with striking visions and profound sermons. They describe scenes or use graphic word pictures that 
show in striking ways how things really are. In proclaiming visions of the future, they proclaim the, really the reality of, of God's plans for the ages. And when they proclaim visions of judgment and indictments in their present, they expose life as it really was. Sin couldn't hide. Right? So the plans that were hidden, that were revealed, that revealed where we were headed, where the world was headed, where God's people were headed, where their destiny is, the prophets revealed that with clarity. They also revealed sin and how humanity had fallen short of God's law and how God's people had rejected him. And they did that with clarity. So this morning, we're going to be helped to rightly see our hearts and our world by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry was carried out amidst a people who were in love with the present world. He was called to proclaim God's will, to proclaim ultimate reality to a prosperous people who had actually turned from the Lord toward a path of self-exaltation, which then resulted in widespread iniquity. The introductory chapter, chapter one of Isaiah, tells us that the people of Judah were plagued by religious hypocrisy and vain worship. They had actually spurned the loving care of their heavenly father. In fact, it says that they actually knew less of God than brute livestock knew of their farms. And yet, chapter one, God still graciously promises to forgive the repentant. He promises to cleanse from sin, to restore the broken, those who turn to him. After that opening sort of summary of the messages that would come through the remaining many chapters of Isaiah, chapter 2 begins another section that really we might say runs to the end of chapter 4. And this large section is kind of bookended uniquely by scenes of a future period of righteousness that is brought about by the purifying judgment of God. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, both concern the future. And they both paint pictures of an ideal future. And then in the middle, we have a portrayal of judgment, indictments of the present, but then a foretelling of future judgment to come. So the prophet's main concern within this whole section seems to be really portraying certain outcomes, revealing certain outcomes to people that needed to hear them the certain wonderful outcomes of staking one's life on God's ways. That's what you have in those two, those two visions of a future blissful period. And then in the middle, you have the certain devastating outcomes of staking one's life on man's ways raised up over and against the knowledge of God. We might summarize that whole section this way. In the first five verses, he portrays the future universal exaltation of God in his ways. And then from verse 6 of chapter 2 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, he portrays the future judgment that will ultimately humiliate prideful humanity and leave Jerusalem and others destitute. Then in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, he portrays a purified people enjoying the provision and presence and protection of the God who saved them. Now this morning, we're gonna limit our study to chapter two, but I wanted you to see how this chapter uniquely fits in chapters two, three, and four. Before I read chapter two, I wanna direct your attention to just 
a few patterns that help us see the emphasis of what the prophet is doing in chapter 2. Notice this. Notice the language of exaltation and humiliation. First in chapter 2, verse 2, we see that God's mountain or the place of his presence is going to be high and exalted. It's going to be lifted up. Chapter 2, verse 11, we see that the Lord will be exalted. We see that again in verse 17. He alone will be exalted. Verse 19, we see that he will rise. In contrast to the Lord's exaltation throughout this chapter, we see that men who are perceived as lofty will be brought low. They will be humbled. Verse 19 just as one example, men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground. So the mountain, the presence of the Lord will be exalted. He alone will be exalted and man will be abased. And with those contrasts in mind, kind of standing out for you, follow along as I read Isaiah chapter two. Isaiah chapter two. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish, Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. 
in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Chapter 2 of Isaiah gives us two future situations. They're both portrayed in these verses, and each is a, a certain expectation. That is a revelation of something that God is going to do, a certainty, an event to come. And we're going to organize our look at chapter 2 around these certainties that Isaiah proclaims, specifically two certainties that call forth esteem for the Lord. Two certainties. Again, an event sure to take place. The first is in verses 2 through 4, and the second is in verses 6 through 21. And after each certainty, it's important to notice that there's a call for response. There's either an admonition or an exhortation, sometimes in the form of a question, but both are a call to response. That is one in verse 5 after the first certainty is presented, and the other is in verse 22 after the second certainty is presented. And these responses and seeing those help us see what Isaiah expects his hearers to take away from his message. Though we're many hundreds of years removed from this prophecy, God's message through Isaiah provides fresh motivation to turn our affections away from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and toward the one who will finally be exalted and ultimately be exalted. It gives fresh reminders to walk in his ways, to give him our esteem, to turn from misplaced trust and a diminished view of God. Those are the concerns of the prophet in chapter 2. And in this chapter, scenes of the future and indictments for the present, they come together to call all who hear to choose. Very simply, are you going to esteem God, who will ultimately be exalted, or are you going to esteem man? who will be abased. If we're falling asleep in our watch for the Lord, these verses should shake us awake. If our view of God's plan for the ages is cloudy, these certainties give clarity and focus to our hope. The first certainty comes for us in verses one through five, and that is that the Lord's ways will reign supreme when he righteously rules the nations. It is certain the Lord's ways will reign supreme when he righteously rules the nations. After the introductory remarks of verse 1, verses 2 through 4 portray an ideal future when the Lord is exalted and the entire world lives with humble regard for him. In the last days, Isaiah says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills. This is God's dwelling place, Jerusalem, the holy mountain of God's temple, all that represents his presence with his people on the earth. It will be raised above all other mountains. God will be exalted in that day. And the exaltation of his dwelling place brings all the nations of the world to him. So this certain future that Isaiah portrays doesn't merely concern Judah or Israel, but all the nations. And verses 3 and 4 tell us why the nations are streaming to the Lord's dwelling place. 
They want to go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach them concerning his ways so that they will walk in his paths. They're streaming to Jerusalem seeking the Lord to know him, to know what he wants, to know what he expects, to know his word as it goes forth and his law so that they can walk after him rightly. In this future day, the nations are all seekers and his teaching will go forth from Jerusalem to them. And in addition to teaching them, these verses tell us that on this day and in this period of time, that the Lord's judgments will govern the entire world. Verse 4, he will judge between nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. The result is peace. It's the memorable figure that we know that's almost proverbial, beating and hammering swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. The result of the Lord's counsel governing the nations will be peace. Unlike the times in which Isaiah prophesied in our current times, nations will not be at war when all peoples walk in the paths of the Lord. There will be no need for instruments of war. We're reminded here, though the nations now rage, it is certain that God's counsel over the world will bring a stability that the mere wisdom of men the politics of men, the negotiations of men can never bring about. So Isaiah gives us this glorious depiction of a day when the Lord's ways ultimately triumph. Jerusalem's the capital of the world. The nations of the world are flowing into the capital where he is seeking his wisdom, ready to accept his judgments, and the result is widespread blessing, specifically harmony between the nations. That would have stood out at the time of Isaiah's writing because God's people rarely knew rest from the threats of the nations. But he's telling them it is certain one day they will. And that will happen because the Lord will be exalted and the nations will exalt the Lord's word and seek his ways and his paths. Now, when will this take place? Well, after the Lord returns. As the rest of this chapter will demonstrate, purifying judgment is required before this ideal future can take place. Most likely, these verses describe an intermediate kingdom after the Lord's return, but before the eternal state. These verses don't figuratively describe the current age. I mean, you heard what I read, and you probably watched the news yesterday. There's no way to make this fit now. The nations are not at peace. The nations are not streaming to hear the counsel of the Lord. It is true that with the outpouring of the Spirit, Gentiles and the nations now can seek the Lord, now can call him Father, that we have been brought in and made a part of the Lord's people. But nations are not at harmony and are not seeking the Lord in Jerusalem. So the wisdom in the Lord's of the Lord started in Jerusalem and is now taken out to the nations. And this portrays a period of time where the Lord will reign from Jerusalem and the nations will flock to him. Why was this image so powerful for the people in Isaiah's day? Because they had his wisdom and they weren't seeking his ways and his paths. Because they had what the nations desperately will want and will have in the future, and yet they spurned it. They knew to exalt God, and yet they spurned him. 
And so as a result of that, Isaiah then brings about this response for the people that heard this vision in verse 5. This is a call for their present response in light of what God is saying will happen in the future. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So the nations are going to Jerusalem in that day to learn to walk in its paths. And here then Isaiah calls the people hearing him in his present. And by extension us today, walk in the paths of the Lord, walk in his light. Walk in all that represents who he is and what he wants. It is certain that he will provide for the world everything on that day that Judah so desperately was trying to get for themselves. It is certain that the Lord's ways will govern the entire earth and the nations will rest in his counsel. And so the people of God who have his word, who have his law, are called to seek him now. Notice that the peace that comes and that harmony doesn't simply just flow because God says, okay, now there's peace. It's a result from walking in the Lord's ways. And that helps us see and helped Isaiah's original hearers to see that the call was for a commitment to the Lord. This vision was to provide motivation for walking in God's ways because one day they will prevail. The same ways that when we're mired in sin or exalting self, we turn from. There are a number of implications for us in this. I mean, just most obviously, we see international conflict right now. We recognize that the nations are not currently yielding to the wisdom of the Lord. And certainly reading this and hearing this vision gives hope in light of the circumstances that one day there will be peace and harmony because people will yield to the Lord. But Perhaps a more important implication for us this morning concerns the sufficiency of Scripture. At the time of writing this, the nations did not have God's law. They did not know God's will in the way that his people did. That's what made the vision and then his call to Jacob, the house of Jacob, so striking. He was essentially showing, in the future, those that don't have what you have, Judah, will, will come to me to get it. You have it now. Walk in those ways. He portrays the nations, Isaiah portrays the nations flooding in Jerusalem, seeking the wisdom, the very wisdom that the people of God were spurning. Similarly, we have the scriptures. By God's grace, we have his will. We have his wisdom. We know his paths. They've been given to us. We've been given the spirit of God to enable us to walk in accordance with the wisdom that the Lord has given to us in his word. We have to be careful because we can affirm the authority of Scripture. We can affirm the veracity of Scripture. We can prize our Bibles and yet live as those who don't possess the word of God if we don't believe it to be sufficient. Said another way, we can esteem the wisdom of God with our lips we can esteem what he's given us in his word with our lips while our lives demonstrate otherwise, while our hearts and our affections and our course of life demonstrates that we don't see this as a sufficient source of wisdom. Do you esteem the principles of Scripture as it pertains to how you work, what you do for entertainment, what you consume, how you dress, what you do with your money, how you serve the church, what you expect from the church, how you relate to your spouse, 
how you raise your children, just to name a few, to value Jesus Christ in every avenue of life as regulated by the word of God implies that we yield every avenue of life to God's sufficient instruction that we may walk in his ways. We have it. And the certainty that one day what we already possess in wisdom will govern the world should motivate us to walk in it now. We can have a taste of that now because of the Lord's grace and giving us his word and saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's certain that in the latter days, the nations will prize his wisdom and seek it. And we should be reminded that we have it. We have all we need for life and godliness, and he has taught us to walk in his ways. He has given us his instruction, and we're called to rightly esteem it, to esteem him in our hearts, and to walk after what he has given us, how he has taught us. And the second certainty that calls forth esteem for the Lord is found in verses 6 through 22. And that is the certainty that mankind's ways will be utterly abased when the Lord judges the nations. Just as certain as the reality that the Lord's ways will reign supreme is that mankind's ways will be utterly abased when the Lord judges the nations. Verses 6 through 9 give attention to the actual demonstrations of human pride taking place in Isaiah's day. And then verses 10 through 21 give attention to the actual shaming or abasing that will take place when the Lord judges those who are engaging in such prideful, sinful living. The exhortation that we just read, too, provides a, really a transition because the implication from what follows is, is that to avoid the judgment that's coming, that's described in verses 10 through 21, the people must walk in the light of the Lord. They must repent. The verse 6 begins by detailing the results, really, of their regard for man. Isaiah addresses the Lord somewhat surprisingly after the exhortation in verse 5 and says, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. This is a reversal of chapter 1. In chapter 1, the Lord says, You, my people, have abandoned me. And here he says that he has abandoned them. Now, ultimately, it's not a, a final abandonment because he's promised purifying judgment. He's promised forgiveness to those who turn. But it demonstrates that he's not with his people while they're living in unrepentant sin, clearly. Then the descriptions that come in verses 6 through 9, really Isaiah is identifying the fact that they were breaking very clear instruction that's found in God's law. God said, don't pursue divination. He says, your land is full of divination. God's word and law said, don't build idols. Don't make idols with your hands. Isaiah says, you've made idols with your hands. God's law says the king should not multiply chariots and horses and finances. And he says, you've multiplied chariots and horses and finances. Notice that in these verses, the words chosen by Isaiah strikingly show that they're full of everything except esteem for the Lord. They're full of everything except esteem for God. 
So why did God abandon his people? Well, because they're full of influences from the east. They're, they're, they're soothsayers. They've become like the Philistines, seeking divination, seeking the way that the pagans sought wisdom. You see the contrast with what we see described in verses 2 through 4? Nations seeking wisdom from the Lord. Isaiah calls the people of Judah to seek the Lord for wisdom. Now what's the indictment? They're actually seeking evil ways to discern and to find insight and wisdom. They've also made alliances with foreign nations. That's what it means at the end of verse 6. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. This will end up having a major impact as Isaiah's message unfolds because they're constantly seeking help from mankind, meaning they're seeking the help of alliances and those that they perceive to be wise and in power rather than doing what the Lord called them to do, which was to seek refuge in him, to trust him with the political problems that faced the nation. Their failure to trust God revealed how much they actually loved the world. Verse 7, their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is also filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. The implication here is that prosperity has filled their hearts with pride, and in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, this nation that's full of these things becomes full of prestige and then turns towards self-reliance, and that's the chariots and the horses. They can defend themselves. They look to their ability to barter treasure with the nations rather than the Lord for their protection. Verse 8, their land is full of idols. Idolatry is rampant. It says they worship the work of their hands, what they, what they made with their fingers. The creator of the universe had called them out of Egypt, and now they're creating with their hands gods who are no gods. They worshiped what they could manipulate. Verse 9 uses interesting language. It's ironic language as a transition into verse 10, and what it means is this, that they're actually abasing themselves before idols. They are bowing themselves down before the works of their hands. The common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. It's saying they're actually bowing low before idols. The idolaters abase themselves before their man-made gods and this will then transition to the abasement that's gonna come at the hand of Almighty God. So Isaiah is using some irony in his language here. So he describes the sinful condition of the nation in six through nine. And now in verses 10 through 21, he describes the fearful and certain judgment that awaits those who don't repent. And I want you to notice again some repetition that are included for emphasis. God wants us to hear this. God's messenger Isaiah wanted his hearers to recognize something very important, and that is that the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That a day is coming where he alone will be esteemed. And therefore, to esteem anything else is folly. It's futile and it'll result in judgment. Verses 10 and 11 says, hide from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, again, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, again, the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty are mentioned. And then again in verse 21, the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to judge the earth. 
So throughout this section then, as he announces what's coming on that day, this day of reckoning where the Lord has his day of reckoning, as verse 12 says, the focus is on man's humiliation. The Lord will raise himself over and against anything and everything that's been raised up against him by humanity, by mankind. The implication for God's people is stop esteeming anything that the Lord is going to bring low on that day. Verse 10, enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. This terror is simply fear instigated by the Lord's announcement of judgment. The splendor of his majesty refers to the full force of his power. Nothing will be held back on that day. Nothing will be held back on that day. The Lord's judgment, the Lord's power will rush forth like a torrent on those who have not rightly acknowledged him. Verse 11, the proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Four, verse 12, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. That reckoning will come against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up with the result that those are abased. So the Lord will have his day. It is certain. Scripture uses a lot of different languages to talk about this day, this day of the Lord, that day where God's rule will be established, the wicked will be judged, the righteous will be delivered. In these verses, the emphasis is simply on the humiliation of all human pride on that day. This isn't a comprehensive portrait of the day of the Lord. It's one with emphasis, and that emphasis is on the humiliation of mankind's pride. The Lord will not share his glory. He will not share his glory with another. He alone will be exalted when he rises to judge those who have exalted themselves. And the language is repetitive to make that message so clear for God's people. Don't trifle with things that are going to be abased. A day is coming where the Lord will be exalted. Verses 13 through 16 simply take aim at any source of human pride. Now you read through this like, man, what, what's he have against the oaks of Bashan and the ships of Tarshish? They represent things that mankind hoped in, trusted in, exalted in, esteemed themselves because of. So he takes aim at everything. Nothing that man exalts in will remain. Again, verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of men will be abased. Verse 18, the idols will completely vanish. Idols which filled the land will no longer fill the land, and they will be completely done away with. And there's actually a, it's a pathetic picture of how this happens and why this happens. Verse 19 says that men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. The picture is mankind cannot get away far enough away from the splendor of the Lord's majesty, the power that's coming in judgment. And they're clinging to these stupid idols that they made that can't help them against the torrent of judgment. And as they're trying to get away, they're throwing the idols away. And who gets them? Well, the moles and the bats. 
Why the moles and the bats? Because that's the places that these pathetic individuals are trying to hide. They're with the moles and the bats in the clefts of the rock and the holes in the ground trying to escape the Lord who's risen in judgment. It's a scene of humiliation. Mankind trying to get as far away from God in terror. And it's tragic. But it's also ironic. The idols can't protect them. The the very things that they bowed down to asking for protection from the nations or to be a source of wealth and sustenance can't help them. As we said, it's intended to make us and the people who heard this see how pathetic this state was, how ultimately empty human arrogance is when God's prophet reveals how things really are. And that is that human pride will not stand against God in his exalted glory. Now remember that each portrayal of a future certainty included a call to respond. The future certainty earlier of God's righteous rule, right, called for the response of seeking wisdom now. It's going to reign in the future. God's people should seek it now. Here, the future certainty of mankind's abasement calls for the response of turning away from any exaltation in our hearts that exalts human achievement, human ability, human wisdom that's over and against that of the Lord. And he simply says in verse 22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Remember, we're enabled to see how things really are. Isaiah has shown his hearers, here's how things really are. These things that you might place confidence in, they'll be brought to nothing. These people that seem like they're secure and lofty and wise and have all they ever want, they will be brought to nothing. That's how things really are. Why would you esteem that? That's the question. To see the folly of trusting temporal human frailty, the folly of trusting those things that the Lord has decreed will be brought low. We're to simply consider Men whose achievements will be brought to nothing, who are reduced to hiding in caves and holes when their foolishness is exposed before the Lord. And to say, that's lunacy. You've got to be crazy to esteem mankind if this is how things really are. That's the point. Recognize the folly and turn. Recognize the folly of setting any of our esteem that should be rightly reserved for God alone on anything except him. Breath in the nostrils, it's like a, just an added shot to make clear human frailty. After describing this pathetic picture of mankind fleeing from the terror of the Lord, Isaiah says, man has mere breath in his nostrils. The idea is that the frailty of humanity in comparison to the eternal power of the Lord. Men who are apart from God or fleeting, temporal, right? Our life, we're told, is like a vapor by James. Those apart from the Lord, what, even more temporal, right? They don't have an eternity with the Lord to look forward to. All that they've created is, is temporal. It's vain. It's empty. Their breath is merely in their nostrils. They're not eternal, transcendent, like Almighty God. I read a quote this week from Carl Truman that reminded me of this, the, the utter insignificance ultimately, of mankind. And this was a warning against pride for those of us who are in the church. He says, the West worships the individual. From the cradle to the grave, it tells us all how special and unique we are, how vital we are to everything, 
how there's a prize out there just for us. Well, the world turned for thousands of years before any of us showed up. It will continue turning long after we're gone, short of the return of Christ. And even if you, me, or the Christian next door are tonight hit by an asteroid, kidnapped by aliens, or sucked down the bathroom plug hole, very little will actually change. Even our loved ones will somehow find a way to carry on without us. We really are not that important. He's right. He's right. Human life is frail. It's temporal. It's fleeting. Anything separated from God or raised up over and against God is frail by nature and will be destroyed. The Apostle John provided a similar reason for not loving the things of the world in 1 John 2.17. He said what? That the world and its lusts are passing away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The message from Isaiah linked with there is don't love the ways of man that are ultimately going to be destroyed. Don't love prideful ways of navigating life, seeking human insight, seeking human achievement, those things that will amount to nothing. Don't rely on man and what man can do. Don't hitch your wagon to mankind's best. Don't set your affections on the things of the world. There's hope in Isaiah, even against this dark backdrop. The one who will rise in the splendor of his majesty to judge is gracious to forgive. He says in chapter one that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. There is a promise held out for the repentant. Those who turn from the esteem of man and esteem the Lord rightly will find forgiveness. But on that day, on this day of reckoning, it will be too late. And that's why the message goes out from Isaiah to turn now. Stop regarding mankind. Turn from pride. Repent. Find forgiveness now through the one whom he has appointed to judge the world. When we are self-exalted, our view of God is diminished. We don't see him or his, or his works as we ought to. That in turn furthers our distance from him. And then our affections for those things that are raised up against him increase. But God's word compels us to forsake worldly enticements that come from esteeming man. And it motivates us by the certainties in chapter two of Isaiah to seek him. By his word, we can be certain that his ways will prevail as his law governs the world. And so we're to seek his ways now. We must walk in his ways now. By his word, we can be certain that he will one day abase proud humanity in judgment. And so we're called now to reject that course of life and esteem him and seek the Lord. He alone will be exalted on that day. That's ultimate reality. That's a certainty. And the one who will be exalted on that day says this, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. People who live like this live in awe of God and have the highest regard for what he says and esteem him above all else. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the clarity that you gave to your prophets that we benefit from so many years later. We thank you for your word. Thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you've reoriented our hearts so that we're not enslaved to those things that would draw our affections completely away from you, and yet we still struggle, we wrestle, and we need your help. By your grace, help us to esteem you rightly, to remove anything from our life that would pull us from you, to, that would cause us to esteem those things that you're going to judge and bring low anything that would cloudy our vision of you and how you really are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace of the warnings in your scripture. We thank you for the grace of the future promises that we look forward to experiencing and enjoying when you're exalted in that day, when the nations honor you and we're with you for all eternity, walking in your ways and enjoying all the blessings that come from being completely made like the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for him to come quickly to take us home, to set things right. It's in his name that we pray, amen.